Hello and welcome to Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Brett Easton Ellis, who will be best known to many of you as the novelist behind Less Than Zero, American Psycho, Glamorama and Luna Park, but here makes his non-fiction debut with White, which is a collection of essays that sort of part memoir, part film criticism, part State of the Nation stuff. And it's the latter part that's caught a lot of attention and generated a lot of flack. People seem to cross the road, Brett, baseball bat this book in print. Was that what you were expecting? No, not at all. I was expecting that people were going to be much more interested in my childhood and my adolescence and the writing of American Psycho, which I go into in this book. And I didn't really think that me writing about how the media was covering the last election in 2016, uh, without going into policy, without straying onto either side of the aisle, was going to be as controversial as it was. I actually took this section that causes a lot of consternation among the press and the mainstream media. Uh, It's a long section about how I uh, was living in Los Angeles and working in Hollywood post-election and how everyone was having meltdowns absolute hysterical meltdowns and they were kind of um creating this dystopian handmaid's tale present we were all living in under trump and i thought it was absurd i thought it was pure hysteria and uh, my partner also had a meltdown also got re-addicted to drugs because of trump and i thought the whole thing was just completely nuts and so i did a podcast on how the entitled people that I knew were having meltdowns over Trump, thematically, perhaps connected to my other novels in a way, writing about privileged people and their breakdowns and their sorrows and uh, the things and that self-absorption. Too. Yeah. Oh, absolute self-absorption. And then there's one other bit in the book that's about I don't know, 15 pages long that talks about the summer of 2018, where I really do think that things kind of imploded for the left in America and became uh, no, no, it it was just problematic. It was quite problematic what was happening. Even the left was becoming aware of this, and they were scrambling to somehow you know, fix themselves in a way. Now, those two sections of the book aren't about policy. They aren't about politicians. They aren't about me defending anyone or going to either side of the aisle. In fact, I'm strenuously apolitical in many ways. Yet in this current climate, the uh, press in America went absolutely nuts. And I've never written a more controversial book than this since American Psycho, and I am stunned uh, I saw this as not a political book, and yet everyone takes it as a political book, filled with rhetoric and filled with political opinion. That's the moment we're in. Yeah. Well, let's try and look at the book a bit more in the round, because I'd, I'd be interested in how it's kind of conceived, because as you say, there are sections that talk about you know, what we might call the culture wars, but it's got a lot else in it. Is it conceived as a kind of one one whole, or is it... I mean, I know some of it, the David Foster Wallace section, for instance, I think appeared as a standalone blog first. I mean, did you kind of... I mean, is it a kind of bodged-together collection of different pieces, or is it a thematic whole? I look at it as one long essay cut into eight sections, and uh, with a narrative, uh, starting with my childhood, and then uh, progressing toward 2018. 
and where I was at that time and what had changed about me uh, during those uh, those decades and where I started out and how, where I ended up. Um, uh, a lot of it is called for my podcast. Uh, I, I do a, a monologue uh, uh, before every podcast talking about either movies or TV or the culture or very rarely po politics. Very rarely I'll do a political po uh, political opening to the podcast. I really don't have a lot of political guests on the podcast. It's mostly writers, filmmakers, uh, novelists, journalists. Um, and uh, so what I was looking at uh, when I was going over the five years of uh, rants or monologues that I've done, uh, I started to see... Um, thematic connections. I was talking about this a lot. I was talking about this a lot. Um, ideology versus aesthetics came up a lot in, in my podcast. Uh, the cult of likability was coming up a lot. Uh, how we've all become actors is coming up a lot. And also one of the most important themes was because of social media, um, how have we, how have we become so hysterical of everything and why is there such overreach and why are voices so uh, shrieking and loud and desperate and is does that move the needle I, I was thinking about the resistance or the progressive movement in the United States and how it seems that uh, their end game was to get rid of Trump but their overreach and their hysteria and their belief in fantasies and narratives ultimately un undid them in a way and I warn this about my my partner my boyfriend is a passionately progressive liberal millennial who has gotten trumped for three years who has completely fallen apart because this man is a president and, and you I see him as a representative do you? well I do see him as a representative and I also know many of his friends and I also have millennial friends I also have millennial friends and I'm sure they're few and far between who like Trump as I do have millennial friends who are pro-Israel. So it's not, I live in a, for, for, for Blue Wave California and Blue Wave Los Angeles, my, uh, the friends I hang out with are pretty diverse. I've never, I've never lived in a bubble of just people of, you know, one political ideology or not. And what was it made you think, like the way to express these concerns, these sort of thematic links, is in nonfiction because um, you haven't written nonfiction before, and your fiction has tended to kind of address itself to a greater or lesser extent to the zeitgeist, to ideas of representation and you know irony and you know a lot of the issues you're talking about here. Why why nonfiction? It sells better. I mean that's. What my agent told me. I mean, I, I'm joking a bit, but it sells better. I mean, um, look, this book is short of cash. <laughs> uh, uh, taxes in California. Mm. Um, you know, my agent uh, was the one who instigated this project. She said, "Why don't you put together a collection of all the essays that you've written since you've been published, which was at 21?" And so I thought, okay. She said, "We can sell a collection of this." And so I started looking at these essays that I've written when I was 21, 23, 27. I didn't like any of them. I thought none of them were worthy to be published. None of I didn't want a collection of this kind of mishmash of these essays I wrote at certain points in my life into a book. And I told her that. And she said, well, what about those, um, those uh, monologues uh, on your podcast? You write those out, don't you? And I said, yeah, we, 
I write them out, but they're written to be spoken. If you saw the page when I'm recording them, it's covered in notes, and I often stop it with my producer, and we talk about maybe we should move to somewhere else. But um, it took spark. Her uh, suggestion took spark. And so began to um, put all of these things into, uh, into a book, mo- moving these essays around, and finding the ones that were most interesting and putting them into a book. Why not fiction is what you're asking, though. Why didn't I write a book about a crusty old Gen Xer living with the progressive <laughs> millennial and their fights and arguments? It's and got, their, got more discernibility, their... doesn't it? Um, you know, I don't know. I, fiction had been leaving me for a long time. Not necessarily in terms of uh, writing scripts, creating TV shows, which I spent the last decade doing, often it not working out. A lot of the time and not working out. Um, so there was a lot of writing being done, but the idea of fictive prose or the novel, I had come to an impasse with it. And I didn't know what the novel necessarily was doing. It, d- it didn't really resemble what it had been doing in the analog era, where it was a source of news, where people would get a novel and find out about a world or... Um, uh, a group of people that they'd never known about before, you would delve into um, whether it was John Updike or um, Norman Mailer or Philip Roth or whoever it was, the big American writers of that generation. Um, and even later on, you could say someone like me or Jay McInerney. I mean, very few people knew about what it would be like to live as a Southern California kid in the early 80s. I mean, that was like a news bulletin for many people. And now I and that was the kind of novel that I grew up with. That the novel as a means of communicating not only aesthetics but um, a, a sense of a world that we don't know anything about. That's very hard to do now. I mean, I can actually probably write a long short story about you know uh, it would be cultural appropriation, but say a, a suicide bomber in Sri Lanka, and I could probably get as many details as I can off the internet and write it, and write that story. Um, I don't know if that interests me so much. So this the nonfiction approach. You mentioned cultural appropriation. Uh, you know, as if that's a. Do you, do you see that as a sort of bad thing? I mean, it's it was- a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing for artists. It's absolutely anti-art. And well, anti-art to object to cultural appropriation. Uh, no, well, to have to agree, to agree with the notion of cultural appropriation, to agree that something is being culturally appropriated by an artist. Therefore, they cannot write it, they cannot perform it, they cannot have anything to do with it. Hands off. That is terrible. That's no way to be an artist. Though your your complaints in the book about Moonlight, you say. The problem is that it's a straight guy's view of a gay relationship. It doesn't mean he can't make it. That doesn't mean he can't make it. Um, that means that... Um, and, and look, I am sure there are straight men who might... Straight directors who might have directed that with a little bit more heat. I certainly think of the sex scenes in Brokeback Mountain that Ang Lee brought a kind of heat to that Barry Jenkins, as a straight dude, is simply not interested in. And that kind of... Uh, distracted me. So they're allowed to do it, but they might not do it well. Look, I know some, I know, uh, there was a, I think a straight young journalist today who was interviewing me and said, oh, I love Moonlight, I love Moonlight. And yet I was talking to a woman today who said, just left me cold. There was just no sex. There was no heat to it. And that was part of the problem for the movie uh, for me. And I also talked about how I, I don't believe that gay people should only direct gay films at all. I say that there. And I don't believe that straight people should, whatever. I mean, it's just that whole notion 
is ridiculous. And, and it suggests... It suggests a society that really doesn't care about art anymore, and they only care about ideology. And ideology runs the day. And I don't know what kind of art that leads to. It leads to a kind of studio-approved, um, uh, intellectually woke art, which is usually the worst art you can possibly find. Um, I, I think it's bizarre that all these critics, uh, the, the mainstream entertainment press, are we need more movies about... Uh, transgender Latina handicapped woman at Sundance. We really, these are the, the movies that we need. And I'm saying, are you goddamn crazy? You know that's not true. You know you want a new Scorsese film. You know you want Saturday Night Fever. You know you want Taxi Driver. Those are the movies that excite you. Those are the big spectacle movies that you all grew up on. It isn't this kind of, you know, um, ideologically correct notion of small-scale indie films that's are, that were supposed to be spoon-fed to us that are. But you make this you make this distinction, you know, and it runs through the whole book between ideology and aesthetics, and you say, you know, aesthetics is prime. I mean, when you're talking about Joan Didion, so, so yeah, the start you're talking Joan, about Joan Didion's style being the thing that came first, and you know, her her views were second to that. You know, George Orwell onwards, people have said, you know, you can't make that distinction. Yes. That ideology, you know, it, an aesthetic form is an ideological decision. That of course. Win. Yes, that is true as well. I'm leaning more towards, I'm a kind of person who leads, who leans more towards, I find the meaning in something in its style rather than I do in its messaging. And I think the difference is, though, that, the message now, usually, for uh, this generation is all on the surface. That the message is the aesthetic. And that's what I have a problem with. They're not even trying to hide the fact that, well, we're going to give you a message and this is an ideological bit of content. Uh, but they're not even pretending that anymore. There, it, it, it is completely a kind of style-free zone uh, that you wander in. Wander around through now, um, and, and very different from how I grew up, where there was style was the meaning in something, especially in films and uh, and and also in novels, and I and I and music, and I don't see that anywhere. Which also, of course, makes millennials think that I sound like the old man on the porch, which I am. <laughs> the, I am the old man on the porch. I don't mind being the old films, man on the porch. I mean, you you write in the book that you're, I think, where's the event? You're much happier. You know, writing a script that probably isn't going to be made than writing a novel that probably I isn't going to I don't work. know about You're... that anymore, but anyway, go on. Yeah. A lot of this is about film. You describe being shaped by film, and you're completely fascinated by actors. Why do actors interest you? Why does the world of film interest you as much as it does? I mean, for a well, literary novelist, it seems... Well, I grew up in L.A. I grew up... All my friends' parents worked in Hollywood. Uh, we all thought we were going to grow up and work in Hollywood either screenwriters, filmmakers, producers, uh, work in studios, run studios, be executives, whatever. And I kind of got, and we all wrote scripts. We were all making little movies, you know. Um, and it seemed like it was a company town, and it seemed just like the natural progression. Graduate from high school, go to university somewhere in L.A., and then immediately get jobs in, in, in the film industry. Did not happen for me, but it did pretty much happen to everyone I knew. All of my other friends did. And I had started working on novels. I'd written one when I was 14, and then I began the Less Than Zero project uh, at 15. So, of course, 
movies matter to us growing up there. And also you have to understand that I was coming of age in the 1970s, which is the golden age of American movie making. And so movies were tremendously exciting at the center of the culture. And I'm getting emails and texts now from so many men my age who are reading the book who went, oh my God, I remember that decade. It was about movies. Movies were what we aspired to. Movies were what we wanted to make. Movies were the grand art form. Um, so that's one reason. Um, and uh, what was the other thing that you asked about? Well, it's your why. Why like you movies so much? And no, why are you so interested in actors? You know, I mean, the Trey uh, Parker, Matt Stone position is that they're completely uninteresting. They are to a degree. Oh, they very much are to a degree. And there's something about that uninterestingness that I find fascinating. It's kind of like the cast of characters from a lot of my novels. Um, I find something completely compelling about it. And how does an actor um, move through his day? How does he interact with other people when he's not acting? Um, and I've and I write about knowing I've had relationships with some actors, and it's fascinating to see. I think you got burned by one of them. I did, I did, I, I did, and that was part of the danger of getting involved with an actor is that you really never know quite what it is they want. Um, but I find it interesting to be this thing, this vessel that moves through the world looking for things to inhabit, to, um, you know, to perform. And then they're done performing and then they go back to their real life, their real selves, and, um, and they're still performing. And I find that fascinating. I did get burned by one and I talk about it in the book. Wholly my fault. All my fault. Um, and I don't think it will happen ever again. But um, I do find the notion of acting and what it means fascinating. And I do think it's fascinating, and I write about it in white, because I think it has spilled out into the culture in terms of that we are all actors on social media to a degree or not. Now, I'm not saying, you know, in such a heavy-handed, you know, overly literal way, but there is a performative aspect that has been enhanced in our lives because of how we interact and we show ourselves off on social media, whether it's your Twitter account, your Instagram, whatever. It's just it's just this thing that did not happen before. And so there is a, some people get very taken with that and get infected by it, and some people just use it, and it's still a performative kind of thing. And, and that's interested me too, how to connect that with acting. And also the cult of likability. Actors have to be likable uh, in order to be cast. They have to have this kind of pragmatic uh, optimism in order to move through the world because it's such a terrible profession on so many levels. And I like that pragmatic optimism. That is also something that's somewhat attractive to a degree. And also it, there's heavy doses of self-loathing, which I also find attractive. So sometimes <laughs> an actor's package is enough for me. Yeah, well, that I mean, that thing of, you know, multiple performances of yourself, of the sort of self... You know, you're doing versions of this in your book. Yes. And, and in your books, historically, you know, um, obviously, Patrick Bateman was almost the kind of extreme example of, you know, somebody who had to be outwardly likable in a certain way, was a bit different on the inside than he was on the out, we can agree, you know, and you kind of become a figure called Brett Easton Ellis in Luna Park, you know, you kind of revisit that. Are those layers, I mean, do you see those as a kind of acting acting thing or is it something different in uh, no I, I there is in my writing of course there is a kind of performative aspect i'm writing usually through 
a character. I've only used narrators. I really have never written a book in the third person. And 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 look, you know, we talk about that. That each each character I've written is somehow. Uh, an extension of myself at the time that I wrote the book. Patrick Bateman certainly is an extension of myself when I was in my... But it took you a long time to come out as Patrick, oh, yes. Patrick Bateman. And quite a long time to come out as gay as well. Both <laughs> things. I mean, I think uh, I think the gay thing was first, and then the Patrick... The gay thing seemed less important than the Patrick Bateman thing, ultimately. Um, why did it take me so long to officially come out? I was going to say, that might be two questions, but... You know. Well, we can start with the first one. Um, well, you know... Look, I my gayness never defined me. It was something like seventh or eighth down the list of things that I was preoccupied with. And uh, I was really subsumed by writing and subsumed by music and by film and by so many other things. And my sexuality was just not something that warranted any kind of tormented response. Uh, and I was pretty chill about it. Um, and when I w- became a uh, famous person with the publication of Lesson Zero, I really didn't feel it was really anybody's business, and yet I never lied. I never said I had a girlfriend, never said I was married. Uh, if a reporter, who were much more polite back then, there, you weren't often, that question wasn't often forced on you, are you gay or not? Um I, I kind of just skirted the issue and kind of uh, was willfully flippant about it. I also didn't want, during that time, my books to be put into the gay ghetto of the gay section that they had in so many bookstores, and that happened to gay authors. Uh, it happened to many uh, people I knew during that time, and I wanted my books to be more mainstream. And I knew that if I came out, it was going to be a the gay thing. And I didn't care enough about the gay thing to even... Give this a second thought. And then finally, about 2005, I actually came out in an interview to the New York Times uh, when I was promoting Lunar Park because I just didn't care anymore. And also, the mood was different then. And uh, and also, I lived in something called the glass closet. I never hid. I was never in a closet. I was kind of what's known as the glass closet. Everyone knows you're gay, and no one, uh, but you don't come out, and you don't announce it to the media. And then you had a second question. Oh, it was why it took you so long to come out as Patrick Bateman. <laughs> well, that's Maybe more complicated. Yeah. I don't know. The gay stuff is easy. But um, the controversy over American Psycho was so loud and so intense, and it was uh, confounding. I mean, I was alone. I mean, the controversy over this book is nothing, nothing compared to what was going on in 1990, 1991 with American Psycho. And when I finally emerged uh, from a press blackout, and I started to do interviews, I, my father was part of the reason that Patrick Bateman got created. He was part of the reason. He wasn't at all, by all means, the whole part. But there was something about this businessman who was following the American dream, who was extremely unhappy, who couldn't find a way to fit into the society he was supposed to fit into. I thought that was my father as well. My father grew up in, you know, he was the boomer generation. He grew up uh, with, uh, you know, the best educated uh, generation in history. And he went to college and he was uh, following the American dream and get the family, get the wife, the beautiful wife, the three kids, a nice house in the suburbs. And he was miserable, absolutely miserable. And he had all of these things to make him happy. And he was very unhappy. The fantasy was never enough. It was never enough. You get one thing, you want another thing, you want another thing. It's a dead end. 
So that part of it I did based on my father, that part of Patrick Bateman based on my father. But really Patrick Bateman was based on me and my youthful unhappiness and my inability, my inability to become a man and my resistance to becoming a man in a society whose values I found abhorrent, which is really everyone's story in the end. I mean, everyone comes of age and goes, my God, is this what it means to be an adult? This is how the world works? This sucks. I don't want this to happen, but then where else do you go? And that was what American Psycho was about for me. And also, I think that is why there's something universal about it in a way, no matter how extreme Patrick Bateman is. I think a lot of people connect to that idea. I'm living in the society and it's... Well, what kind of surprised me about the row about about the book was it's portrayed as a, you know, a steelily amoral book, and a book with no personal investment. I mean, it seemed to me a very moral, almost sometimes moralistic book. Too much so, I think, at times. Yeah. Um, too earnest at times. Yes, and quite a personal book as well. In and a that... personal book too. If see, this is why I can't really look back at my earlier work, and I know. There are many admirers for American Psycho. It's going to be on my tombstone. I get it. I get it. Patrick Bateman haunts, will haunt me forever. I will never write anything that will take the place of that. But I, all these things you say are correct. It is an extremely moralistic book. It's also quite earnest, and I see that earnestness throughout the novel if I pick it up, and it drives me a little bit crazy. And um, it is very much about me and my life at that time. Now, of course, I wasn't a raging misogynist, racist, serial killer, cutting up people, I mean, in Manhattan. But there was a lot of things about the unhappiness of Patrick Bateman that I shared with him. And I do think that Patrick Bateman's criticisms of the society that he's a part of are accurate and they are correct. And he is right about the world he is trying to move through and trying to fit into. And uh, that was compelling to me, and I felt the same way, because I felt the same way. So um, I do, and I and I do think there was a moment, finally, where I could actually be comfortable enough and come out and say that. It was, of course, 20 years after the book was published, but uh, 10 years ago I started to talk about this because I felt... Uh, you know, if people were going to ask me again about where did Patrick Bateman come from, I could now answer without hedging my bets. What's funny is around that time, you, you have a line, I think it's a very kind of poignant line in this book, where you say, you know, what's the effect of the happiest I've ever been was in the summer of 1991. That's true. Did you know that then? I mean, were you I aware did. then that you were happy? Because I was. I did. Uh, I. It's very hard to explain to people now uh, what American Psycho meant in the fall of 1990 and into the spring of 1991. I was alone. I had no support. I had an agent. I had a publishing house who had bought the book amidst an outcry from the rest of the people in the publishing house that they bought the book. I had been dropped by all of my European publishers except one, Picador. Um, and Everyone assumed my career was completely over, that I was not going to get another... You'd been uh, cancelled long before been, cancellation was a thing. Oh, I was cancelled. And the New York Times was completely trying to cancel me. The New York Times, it wasn't as if a bunch of mob, you know, mob, a troll, a mob troll was after me. It was CNN. It was the New York Times. And there was absolutely nothing anyone could do to help me. I was completely adrift. Oh, I had my mom. Sure call her up sometimes, not my dad. And um, and it really was this weird moment where I was just numb. And I was kind of numb. And I knew that the book was 
something other than what 100% of the media was talking about. And it was very frustrating to see the book presented this way when it wasn't that. And suddenly the book comes out in the spring of 1991. And it's like a balloon deflating because people finally read the book. The book was finally released. Everyone else was talking about some fantasy they had about the book. And it all stopped. I mean, you have to remember hundreds of death threats, handwritten, sent to my agent's office, uh, people going into bookstores. I love death threats. Death threats are, they, they wake you up. They wake you up a bit. And so after going through this trial by fire in the, in the, in the winter 1990 into the spring of 1991, there was this huge sense of relief. And I didn't care anymore. I thought, I'm never going to go through something like that again. I'm never going to be this kind of pariah ever again. Um, I've come close, but never as as much as I was during the American Psycho controversy. And that summer was quite freeing and joyous. I felt that I had become uh, an adult. That was it. It wasn't the writing of American Psycho that made me become an adult. It was this battle that happened with getting American Psycho published that uh, I, I would have to say made me a bit more of a man than I was. I mean, a lot of your public persona is, you know, I don't care what people think about yeah. me. But is that something that's come from that? Because it sounds to me, as you describe that, like you minded very, very much indeed at the time. I minded how the book was being portrayed. I didn't care how I was being portrayed. I minded how the book was. The book was being portrayed as something as it was, it was not. I don't know how I'm portrayed, you know, ultimately, there are calculations, I suppose. I did, I suppose present myself as a writer type. I was cautious about my homosexuality. There were things that I was uh, calculated about to a degree. But I don't know if I ever really cared what people thought about me uh, as a writer, as a creative. And I think I got rid of that in workshop at university, and I think I got rid of that. When people say terribly dumb stuff about your stories, and even your teachers do too, and you still believe in what you're doing, and you're not writing for your mother or dad. That's the other thing that a lot of people do. They want to write stuff that plays with their family, that plays with their friends, um, and I just didn't really care about any of that. Um, and I still don't, because what is the point? What is the point of caring about what people think about your work? I love seeing people at signings. I love seeing fans. I really do. It's kind of exciting. Um, we did one, I think, yesterday for hundreds and hundreds of people, and it went on for hours, and I still, I mean, I was wiped out at the end, but I loved meeting these people. But what they really think about me, I I don't know. I guess, I don't know. It's, 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 a, it's a strange place to be and to not care about what people think of your yeah, books. But you say, you, you know, you care about what people think about your books, but not about you, and yet you put yourself into the books. And also you did, you know, as a fact of the universe, you became very, very super famous when the, your first book was published and then even more famous when American Psycho came out. And you have a line here where you say something, um, you say it's totally different being a celebrity to being a writer. And those things, you know, you you had to do both. Uh, yeah, I mean, a, a celebrity to me is not a novelist, and I've known well-known writers. Um, your job, I suppose, is a very solitary one that you should enjoy, but you're alone a lot, 
you're not working with a director, you're not working with actors, you're not putting together a movie, you're writing a novel, and it, sometimes it takes years, and that means you have a lot of alone time. And you're not particularly, you know, you're not uh, grooming yourself so you look great for the paparazzi, and you're not, you know, you're, you're, um, you're a writer. And so I never expected to get famous from my books. I never expected Less Than Zero to do what it did. No one did, actually. And it just happened. It happened to hit. Um, so I, that, And I grew up in L.A. where we all thought fame was a joke. I mean, we really had a kind of smarmy attitude about celebrity growing up in L.A. and seeing actors and going to school with actors. I mean, my class was filled with people from Laura Dern to whoever, kid actors, uh, the girls on Little House on the Prairie. Um, um, and it was always seemed a bit of a joke. So I never really imagined that I uh, that was in the cards for me. And I really haven't done a lot of the things that you do, I suppose, to stay famous. I haven't published anything in 10 years. Uh, I haven't tried to write that novel that's going to get me critical acclaim or a prize or two, which I've never won. Um, and I seem to be continually controversial and rub people the wrong way. And this has been going on for almost 35 years now, and I can't tell you why. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> the big joke is cancel me. Come on, cancel me. If you can't stand it so much, you know, cancel me. But anyway, getting off the topic here. Yeah. Um, there's a section of the book where I mean, I'm interested in talking a bit about your relationship with David Foster Wallace, not so much your personal sort of relationship with sort of friendship but between your work because you know you were seen rightly or wrongly as a kind of avatar of what he was reacting against you know he wrote that essay about irony saying essentially the irony that was associated with the generation that came before me which I guess was you and probably Jay McInerney is you know it's toxic because you can't say anything real because you're always just ironizing things and standing back from them and so he kind of galloped out into this idea of a kind of new sincerity or a rejection of irony did you think there was something in what he said or were you approaching the same issues from a different angle well he's a year older than me david foster wallace so it wasn't as if he was looking at he was my generation not the literary generation really Oh, he, well, no, he did publish his first novel in 1987, so it was around that time. I think The Broom of the System came out then, and he had been influenced by the Brat Pack. I was a big influence on David Foster Wallace. He saw what the Brat Pack was selling. Uh, David Foster Wallace wasn't a writer at all in high school or or in, into his early 20s. I mean, he saw what was happening in publishing in the mid-80s and said, oh, I think I can do that, and he could. He could. He wrote, he wrote pastiches. His fiction is all pastiche. I don't believe that David was a fiction writer. I believe that he was a, a journalist. He was a nonfiction writer. And I think ultimately the idea of being a novelist kind of killed him in the end, kind of destroyed him. Uh, he couldn't do it in a way. Uh, and I think he knew that he wasn't a fiction writer and that he was primarily a journalist. Um, his whole take, and, and, it, and, it, and, he, and you're right to a degree because he does flow in to a generation, even though he is my age, that was looking at uh, literature in that moment as more aspirational, uh, more self-help, uh, slightly more woke, definitely less ironic. And um, But I don't know what he replaced it with. And I didn't like what he replaced it with, whatever that might have been. 
I, it seemed like a gesture to me, like so much of David Foster Wallace seems to me to be a gesture, uh, as does a lot of Dave Eggers, I have to say, that this... He's got uh, a similar kind of ingenuousness. Yeah, and an earnestness. And it's like that... Uh, there's this line in this movie uh, made about Wallace. It's called The End of the Tour with Jason Siegel as Wallace and I believe uh, Jesse um, Eisenberg as this Rolling Stone reporter, uh, David Lipsky, who follows uh, David Foster Wallace around on the last leg of his Infinite Jest tour. And David Foster Wallace in this is portrayed as this angelic, schlub of a human being where David was a completely complicated and quite violent person. He attacked Mary Carr, yes, was going to kill the character, all, the whole thing. And he was a very cruel critic, problems with drugs. Uh, he was, I think, brilliant. I will have to say that. And I think maybe even a genius. Um, but um, this movie prefers the angelic, saintly David. And at one point near the end of the movie, he tells, he grabs the journalist who is going to write something that David doesn't want him to write and grabs him and goes, be a good guy, be a good guy. As if I can imagine David saying that, but maybe. But that is a, that might be a very good idea for a bro, but it is an absolutely dreadful idea for a writer. And I think that there was a generation who kind of followed this... Uh, faux earnestness into um, into oblivion. I don't know what came out of it that was so interesting. Perhaps some of David's journalism, I suppose, and maybe some of Edgar's journalism, but um, I, I don't know exactly where where it went that was interesting. Yeah. Is there? A... Franzen certainly didn't follow that. Franzen certainly uh, uh, disagreed and with Wallace about that, and was a good friend of Wallace's, and knew that was perhaps not the way to go. I mean, maybe in that moment it was, but the, but the corrections and certainly freedom are two massive examples of, you know, uh, complex, uh, complex irony and satire and certainly as influenced by Don DeLillo as they are by, you know, anyone else, the ice king of uh, American fiction. Yeah. To return briefly to this idea of, you know, you're looking back on, on an era in which, I mean, I think you talk about it in an essay as, you know, empire and this yeah. post-empire or post-post-empire yeah. phase we're in now. Is there a kind of continuity? Because it strikes me, one of the things you say in the book, for instance, is that pornography, you know, now you can get it so easily, takes all the fun out of it, that, that we're in an age of effectless, everything-on-demand, instant consumer gratification, which takes, you know, drains the sort of sense of aspiration out of everything. But simply to an extent, isn't that the sort of society you were critiquing in the late 80s, only more so? <laughs> of course. I mean, isn't that ironic? Of course it is. I mean, so, uh, but there is still something tactile about the analog era that I miss, touching things, um, uh, being able to... Uh, touch an album or that film was on celluloid or that you were typing and pulling paper out of a... I mean, I'm, I'm really dating myself here, but I'm serious. I do think that there was 
an investment in things. I know there was an investment in things that there simply isn't now. And that's why everything feels slightly disposable. That's why my boyfriend, who's 32, really as smart as he is, as educated as he is, one great university, is left nothing really makes him particularly thrilled or excited. It's like a thousand things he watches a day. And it's how But people manage to get outraged. Is that is that do you think the I think of... people manage to get outraged because that, that that is why my boyfriend is outraged in so many respects because there's nothing to anchor him. There's nothing to anchor him but that outrage. Everything he's got five YouTube videos going on at once. He's got a video game going on at once. He's listening to MSNBC in the background. It's just and nothing lands. And then he can't concentrate on a novel or a movie. I mean, whatever. There's a, a lot of reasons why he's a mess. But um, yeah, it, I guess it is just that decade on steroids but i still i still must argue that 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 ardency that the analog era encouraged in you to care about things more than one does now i don't know is um is a is i think it, there there's been a loss i really believe that there's been a loss in that but i mean at the same time you seem to find yourself on the other side of that argument a bit at the moment because people are saying we care very much about what brett has said in this book and we hate it. And you're saying, like, I don't, you know, it's a put-on. I don't care. I'm writing a, a, a sort of piece of performance art, a piece of irony. I uh, read a review from a young transgender millennial of this book early on. Horrible review. And uh, she wrote that Freddie Sinellis is old, he's white, he's completely irrelevant. I do not know why Alfred A. Knopf is publishing him. How could this publishing house be publishing the rantings of an irrelevant old white man who's completely irrelevant? I can't even believe that this book is being published. He is sexist. He is racist. He is old. He is irrelevant. 3,000 words on me. 3,000 words on me. Is that triggered? I don't know. If does an old white irrelevant man deserve 3,000 words in a massive three-page review and book forum in the United States. I don't know. I was reading this review midway through going, oh my God, she cares more about the book than I care about the book. What is going on here? Why, where is this overreaction coming from to this book? And so, um, so yeah, that's where I'm, that's where I'm at right now. And I am reading the reviews and, but you have to understand, I have always been more or less reviewed kind of like this. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? That I shouldn't be writing the books, I guess. I shouldn't be writing the books. They shouldn't be published. Yes, well, people <laughs> prefer you not to be, but you're not, you're not censored. I mean, do you, do you buy into the idea, which, is, which you can find on both left and right, that there is a, a sort of threat to free speech in of course society? There is. Of course there is. A terrible threat. And it is maybe easier to shrug off if you are not an artist and if you're not a writer and if you are not paid in a way to express yourselves or you find yourself that that's how you make a living and that's how you want to live. Um, that is a terrible way uh, to live, to have, to have this sort of authoritarian language police always breathing down your neck and having uh, triggering divisions in publishing houses, making sure... The book doesn't do this, it doesn't do that, and you're not triggering anyone, and there's enough diversity everywhere, and it's inclusive, and this and this. That is really a, that is a, and, and worries about cultural appropriation, cultural appropriation. Um, I feel that as a society that doesn't care about art, 
I feel it's a society of comrades who care about a rule book in order to make a movie, in order to make a book, in order to make music even. Um, and that is uh, something that I maybe I'm much more aware of because I'm in the center of it than, say, people who aren't, my friends who are maybe in business or, or in, in other fields. But as um, a creative, it is, uh, it's, uh, it's, it is stifling. And I'm not one of those people who is, I'm just not an, an aspirational writer in a way. And I think if people respond to my books, they love its vision of the world. And its vision of the world is somehow aspirational to them. I see that all the time. I saw that yesterday at, at the book sign. And the, people, the hundreds of people who came up who were fans find the books aspirational to them and, and inspirational to them. But to a literal-minded reader, they would be like, this is crap. This is totally depressing. What is Ellis's message? What is he trying to say? And, um, you know, there are two sides of the aisle. The final question I want to ask, just out of sheer curiosity, you know, you've talked a lot about Twitter, but you mentioned on Twitter that you once accidentally tried to order drugs on Twitter thinking you were text messaging. Um, I mean, in this country, we celebrate a festival called Ed Balls Day, which is when a senior member of the government I think was self thought he was searching his own name and tweeted his own name. It says, "How wasted were you to do that?" Uh, that tweet's still up. I haven't deleted that tweet. I have not deleted that tweet. You can find it. Uh, my boyfriend had gone out for the night. It was a Friday. I didn't want to go out. I wanted to stay in. There was a new Rolling Stone uh, special on HBO. A long, I think it was about the time that the Rolling Stones were making Exile on Main Street, and Robert Frank was following them around making that infamous documentary, uh, Cocksuckers Blues. I mean, I'm sure maybe you'll have to plot that out. But um, And I wanted no, to see it. Martin, Martin Scorsese had uh, helped produce it, and I really wanted to not go out that night and watch it. And I started to watch it, and I was doing shots of tequila when I was drinking tequila, and I got a bit wasted. and It was very long, and I noticed I had drunk a lot of tequila. And I, <laughs> I went to bed, and then uh, uh, he called me. Uh, he was still out, and he said... Uh, Actually, he texted me. He said, I'm still out. I'm coming home soon. And I was still really wasted. And I, I hadn't done drugs in actually a little while. So it would had been a, a year or so. But I was in that mood. I was in that Rolling Stone uh, exile on Main Street tour mood. And so I texted to him. I thought I was texting to him. I said, OK, why don't you stop over at so-and-so's house and bring back some Coke? Except I wasn't texting. I was tweeting that. <laughs> And I tweeted that out, and I hit send, and I collapsed back into bed. And the next morning, I wondered, why did I have all of these retweets on? What, what is it? I mean, you get, there was a little red number or something. And I opened it up, and uh, to m much to my surprise that it gone out to my, I don't know, at the time, my 400,000 followers. That is the story of one of my more infamous tweets. And yes, I own it. It happened. It's still up there. And it is retweeted pretty much every other week. I get, I get it on my feed. Top that, Ed Balls. Brett Easton Ellis, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you. 